Nothing better than God, nothing better than his son, Jesus Christ. I hope we believe it. I hope we feel it. We live in a world that bombards us with nothing but images and messaging that there's always something better, something better to do than worship, something better to do than following him. So singing those lyrics, I hope we really mean it. I've got a few announcements before we continue um, with worship this morning. The first is just to note the nice flowers here on stage and, and say thank you to Stan Lehman's family. We had his service last week, and that's what those are here for. And then a couple of no's. I need to tell you no on a couple of things. There's no potluck next week, just a reminder uh, so that we don't forget where potluck is moved to the 15th because that'll be when we have the missionaries in town with us. And there's no rise this week. No rise this week. The Field of Faith event is happening in Wakhan. And if you know of those who need a ride or need to coordinate those, have them get in touch with John and they can figure that out. Um, and last, just to remind you that October is going to be a busy month. It's kind of an exciting month. We have baptisms next week. And then we have uh, the following week, we'll have Pastor Banush in from Kosovo, as well as Mitch Carlson from Japan. So we'll take that whole service, and we'll have those two men speak, and I'll speak very shortly. Um, but it should be an exciting time to get to talk to those who are actually out in the field and see what God is doing in other places. And we'll have our potluck after that so that you can spend some time with Banoosh and spend some time with Mitch and get to hear from them. And then on the 22nd, we'll have a church meeting right after the service. Uh, that's on the 22nd. All right, let's continue our worship. We're going to open Psalm 19. Psalm 19 this morning. Psalm 19 is a, a neat psalm. It reminds us of both God's general revelation and his special revelation. The first six verses talk about his general revelation that in creation itself we see that God exists and we begin to understand how majestic and beautiful he is and then it shifts to his special revelation, his inspired word, the Bible, so that we can know him, truly know him and live in a way that is worthy and pleasing to him. So Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today simply and only because you sent your Son to redeem us from our sins, that by faith in him we can call upon you as Father, and you are our rock, immovable, and our redeemer, the one who showed great mercy and love to people by sending your son. Lord, we come today hoping, praying that indeed our meditations, our thoughts, our worship would be pleasing to you, that it would glorify you, and that your spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds, drawing us ever near to the Lord Jesus Christ and fellowship with one another. Let it be true that the world will know your people by our love for one another. And Father, we just pray this morning that you will be blessed, that you will be praised, that you will be honored. 
as we sing and as we dig into your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, as always, to the worship team. Well, no big surprise on where we're going this morning. We're continuing through the book of Acts, and we hit this morning chapter 6. It's kind of an interesting little passage that's sandwiched in between what we saw over the last few weeks, this proclamation of the gospel, this great work in the community, the persecution that came, and the church's great response, and then what's coming next, which is the longest sermon in Acts, and then we have these seven verses, this controversy, a conflict in the church, a new attack, really. It has to do with growing factions in the church. And the dangers that come from that. Now, in researching, I came across various blogs and forums where people had different versions of saying, essentially, the church is not full of good people. That's why we don't go. The church is not full of good people. And I thought that's interesting because I don't think that that's a criticism at all. In fact, I think that's a part of our testimony. I think it's a wonderful thing because we begin with that statement that all have sinned. Yes, even all of us sitting in church this morning, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, Jesus, the only good man, said there is no one good except God alone. And it's for that very reason that we need a savior. It's for that very reason that God sent his son to live in human flesh and to go to the cross and atone for the sins of all who will follow Jesus, all who are saved by repentance and faith. The church is made up of sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And as such, we're called to bear with one another and humble ourselves and follow him. But while we remain in this world, as he gives us the breath of life each day, we get up every morning and enter a battle. We war against the world, we know that, and the devil, but the hardest one is we war against our own flesh, our pride, our temptations, and that naturally results in conflict. It's nothing new today. This happened from the beginning. Paul's letters to the church in Corinth go through First and Second Corinthians, and they are chock full of him addressing any number of practices that led to disputes in the church. And he closes his letter to the church, the second letter, saying, I fear that perhaps when I come, and remember, he's talking to the church, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. You may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling. There may be jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder among God's people, among those who are called to follow Jesus. See, we're no different today than they were in the first century. All all you have to do is go into any town in any city and look at the number of churches who profess to believe the same thing and and then start digging into history and realize that people split off because they just can't agree over some small thing. The church consultant Tom Rainier compiled a list of 25 disputes that crippled churches, leading to various degrees of church splits. You can go look at the full list, but a few examples of these was a church split that resulted from an argument that began when one of the members hid the vacuum cleaner from another member. No joke. This is kind of my favorite one because we have potlucks. A disagreement over the use of the term potluck instead of pot blessing, because there's no luck, right? A dispute that started in a debate over whether the church should purchase a weed eater. So watch the trustees. In a church, argument and vote, which I can't even imagine having a vote over this in a meeting. A church argument and vote over whether a clock in the sanctuary should be removed. And these are the things that resulted in splits, there's 21 other silly examples, but we always want to believe that there's some giant, sensational, theological reason why a group splits off from church, but generally speaking, it's nothing more than simple disputes and grumbling. Grumbling is what we'll run into in our text this morning. James rhetorically asks, James 4, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Again, speaking to Christians. Is it not this, 
that your passions, your desires are at war within you. You desire, you want something and you don't have it, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Satan hates Jesus and he hates his church and given our sinful nature that never goes away as hard as we try, it's not as hard as you would think to disrupt the ministry of Christ's body. It is why unity is so highly prized, why we're called to work for it, why Jesus in John 17 in that high priestly prayer prayed that all who follow him, all who belong to him would be, and I quote, perfectly one, just as he and the Father are eternally one. And he says why? It is because the world is watching. He says the world will look upon you and come to know that God sent Jesus both as Lord and Savior. So we come this morning to this threat to this new and growing church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. It is a church that we have read about. It has been thriving. It has been growing. It has been feasting on the word of God. It's devoted to prayer and selflessly looking out for the needs of the brothers and sisters. And then you hit Acts chapter 6 and read, now in these days. When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its timeless application. We thank you, God, for preserving it for us. And we pray that by your spirit, you would illuminate your text to our hearts and change our lives, making us ever more like your son, Jesus Christ, whom we come together to worship this morning and in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, our passage, this, well, we'll cover it. You have the four headings in front of you, right? It's God's method is God's word. And then an internal threat, solution through organization, and a powerful result. I am not that creative with titles, so you can kind of figure out which verses those are going to cover. But our text this morning begins and ends by noting growth. We love growth. Every pastor loves growth. But it is a specific type of growth. If growth in numbers, just filling seats, is all that matters, there's actually multitudes of articles and books and even consulting firms that you can hire that can come in and teach you how to grow. You are to incorporate the world's methods into the church, and that will attract more people to come. At the top of the list of what you are to change is the messaging of the church, the preaching of the church. Stop proclaiming the word of God in all of its fullness. Tell a a story of tolerance and love, but don't speak the word of God because it is used by the spirit of God to convict us of our sin and call us to repent and call us to change and call us to obey Jesus and follow him. And that is too convicting for the world, for lovers of culture. And they won't enter the door, they say. But God's way is different. God's way is timeless. God's way is unchanging. We both read in the psalm and sung in our songs today, and John prayed, he is our rock. He doesn't change. And his objective, and therefore our objective, is to go and make disciples of Jesus. Those who will be conformed to the image of Christ, those who will belong to a church and grow in the word of God and strive and live together so that we can be presented pure and holy as the bride of Christ someday. You can sum it up anywhere in scripture, but it's done so nicely in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort, right? Call people to change. The opening says, the disciples were increasing in number. The last verse concludes with the fact that the number of disciples 
multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Between those two, of course, is an observation where Luke reveals a big problem that threatened this. But to understand why this internal problem of the church is actually so important, we have to remember how the Lord was adding new believers to his church, how he was making disciples. And so we have to always remember the chapter and verse numbers were added for our convenience. But if we go back and we read this together with Acts 5.42, we read every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. It wasn't appealing to the architecture of a church building that God used. That wouldn't even come for a few centuries. It wasn't the way they dressed. It certainly wasn't their material possessions. It wasn't stage lighting. It wasn't the songs they sang or any of the things that we often get focused on today. There was one thing, and that was Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. His perfect, obedient life. His suffering, his substitutionary death on the cross, the resurrection of the living Lord Jesus, the fact that he was coming again, that was what was taught and they were calling for a response, repentance, turn from sin, turn to Jesus Christ, orient your life toward following Jesus, believe in him, follow him, submit to his lordship in everything. And the promise was a beautiful promise. It is forgiveness. Forgiveness for any sin. Forgiveness for all sins, for all people who believe and reconciliation to God, adoption as his children, and eternal life. And so we see this term used over and over again in our text, but really for the first time in Acts. They're not referred to as Christians yet, and that's probably a good thing. That's almost a meaningless term today. They're not referred to as believers even. They're referred to as disciples. Disciples. We know that term well. I just noticed as I was walking in, it's on our welcome slide because that's the mission of our church is to be disciples, to make disciples. But we need to think about what that term means. It is a very important term used here in Scripture. Disciples are lifelong learners, right? They are apprentices. They, they learn. They're not consumers looking to be fed. They're not critics coming to judge. They are those who are eager to learn, to understand the scriptures, God's word, and to apply all of God's word to all of life because we're always seeking as a disciple to be like the master, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, to please him, to look forward to that day where we might hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that is really the mission that Jesus gave to the church. We're not called simply to go out and get decisions, to make converts. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. Baptize them and then teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And disciples are made through the sharing, through the preaching, through the teaching of God's word. We know that it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. And so in verse 7, we read, the word of God continued to increase. A very intentional statement. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Because God's word is the power that God uses to make disciples, to save the lost, to draw everyone near to God through faith in Jesus, and then to sanctify us throughout life. And that method never changes. It never changes no matter our moment in history or our cultural preferences or the way that social status and all of these things factor in. It is always God's word. In the book, The Gospel's Power and Message, The Gospel's Power and Message, Paul Washer wrote this. We live in an unbelieving and skeptical age. The culture ridicules our faith as hopeless myth viewing us as either narrow-minded bigots or weak-minded victims of a religious ruse. Now, such an attack often puts us on the defensive, and we attempt to fight back and prove our position and relevancy with apologetics. And although some forms of this discipline are quite helpful and necessary, we must realize that the power still lies in the proclamation of the gospel. God has promised to work, not through human wisdom or intellectual expertise, but through the preaching of Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. That's it. So simple. yet so hard sometimes for us to do. Because while the gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, it actually takes 
faithful men and women to share it, to model it in their lives, to demonstrate the transforming power of Christ and his spirit, and to call people to repentance and faith. Because God's word asks and answers that important question in Romans, how are they to believe of him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And that is why what happened in this church was such a huge issue. Because it is an issue that if left unchecked, would stain their witness to the community. They would look upon them as hypocrites. It would focus the church instead of outwardly, instead of growing as disciples, instead of preaching the word, it would focus them instead on themselves and their bickering internally. And it would limit the preaching and teaching of God's word. So it moves us to our second heading, which is an internal threat, or really, uh, the way that Luke is unfolding this, this is an attack. Because we've talked before about the three primary means that the devil uses to attack the church, and it's the same today. There are external threats, there's persecution and things that come from outside. We've already seen that in Acts multiple times, and we'll see it more. There's moral compromise that is tolerated within the church. There's corruption from within, and we saw that in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. But this third form is the most clever. This third form is the most deceptive, and that is distraction. Now, it takes on many forms, but here we see it with an attempt to refocus the apostles' mission and work away from their calling and toward internal matters. If they could be drawn away from their God-given responsibility to pray and preach, then the lost may not be reached. And the church itself would not grow in spirituality and faith and instead be left without any defense against any false doctrine. And they would be easily deceived. And indeed, it doesn't take long before you see the letters to the church addressing this problem. Galatians is one of them where Paul says, I can't believe how quickly you've departed the faith that I taught you. The the internal problems, false doctrine, those are something the Bible warns about far more than any warning against threats from the outside. Those are easy. We see those. They might not be fun, but they're easy. So let's look at what happened. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So it was the very growth of this church that resulted in the conflict that they were having. And so you have to understand the historical context. Remember that we're still dealing only with Jerusalem. The church will spread out of Jerusalem at this point, but just as Jesus said, you'll preach first in Jerusalem. And it began with 120 that were gathered for prayer and worship in that upper room. They were the locals. They, they were there. And at Pentecost, we saw in Acts chapter 2, Jews from all over traveled to Jerusalem. They were from different cultures. Their language was often different, and we saw this wonderful miracle as the 120 spirit-filled Christians went out and proclaimed the mighty works of God to these people in their own languages. And many of these travelers, no doubt, remained in Jerusalem. Because we're told on that very day that 3,000 of them were baptized into the church. And then more and more. By Acts 4, we have a count of 5,000 men. In Acts 5, 16, we're told of this great expansion as people began to come into Jerusalem from surrounding towns to stay there. It is thought by historians that by this time that we're reading this text, the church numbered somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 members. 20,000 members. And and what we know about the internal life of the church this far is that they were devoted to biblical teaching, the teaching of the apostles, to prayer, to worship, and to each other. And you get this wonderful statement about the church at the end of Acts 4. There was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were the owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So it's a wonderful, Christ-centered community. But the church had grown far larger than 12 men who were called to preach and teach could reasonably deal with. The administration of meeting the needs of people, of caring for them, had become all-consuming. They were taking in donations of money. They needed to purchase food. They needed to make allocations to people. And so a problem arose between two groups. The Hebrews, we might think of as the old guard, They lived in Jerusalem, 
They spoke Aramaic, a, a, a sort of a dialect of Hebrew that would develop. They spoke Aramaic, and they worshiped at synagogues using the Hebrew scriptures. The second group were the Hellenists. These were Jews of the diaspora. They were raised outside of Palestine. They were Greek-speaking, they were influenced by Greek culture, and they worshipped in their own synagogues using the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And they were looked down upon as the second-class Israelites now coming in and filling this church. I have to remember one other thing. There was no welfare system at that time. And women didn't work like they did today. They were dependent upon the resources of their father's house and then when they were married, upon their husband's family. So a widow was very, very vulnerable in society, both economically and socially. And God had always made provision among his people for the care of widows, the care of orphans, the care of the needy. And you can go back into Exodus and Deuteronomy and you can see this laid out. So the synagogues, while none of them did a perfect job, just like the church doesn't, they took care of this with the widows coming into Jerusalem. But for Christians, they were increasingly separated from the synagogues. And they didn't have this avenue of care. So the church took that responsibility. In fact, we see a continuing responsibility given to the church to care for those in needs throughout Scripture. Paul will even give very specific instructions in 1 Timothy 5 for how to deal with widows in the church. So we're looking, remember, into this church. We're getting an inside view of a church that was first told to us that there was not a needy person among them. And in Acts 5, we're told that that was part of their witness, that the outsiders, the unbelievers, those who wouldn't follow Christ, looked upon that body of believers with great favor. But now, there's a complaint. But whether the unfairness is real or perceived, it doesn't matter. It tells us there's a complaint that arose about unfairness. Now, this makes it sound like when we read, at least from the ESV, like there's a dispute between these two groups that they're arguing and the apostles might need to weigh in. But that's not actually what's happening here. The, the word translated complaint is usually translated grumbling throughout the Old and New Testament. It is defined as an utterance made in a low tone of voice. It was grumbling. It was murmuring. It was behind the scenes talk. It was whispering about what was going on. It was stirring dissension. And the Bible, we won't turn there. You can in small groups. I think I gave you some verses. But the Bible warns against this over and over because it is so dangerous in the church. People begin to take offense at the offense at the offense of others. They're not even close to it. And now they're offended and they're angry. And you can even have, in this case, the Hellenists and the Hebrews both angry at what the apostles are doing. See, just like the Israelites who grumbled about Moses and Aaron and their leadership because they didn't like the food on the journey out of slavery in Exodus 16, the grumbling and complaining in the early church wasn't really about the other group. They weren't in charge. It was about the apostles. It was their poor administration skills. Uh, they're overlooking us. They're failing. They need to spend less time praying and preaching the word of God and get to the real work of meeting the needs of us, of the people. And so this grumbling continues on. See, it doesn't have to be about any big theological issue. The division can get created as people begin to grumble and build factions and then get upset. It's often small matters that lead to big divides. Chuck Swindle tells a story of a church that had a vibrant ministry and a powerful witness in its local community, and he goes into great detail about that. And it grew bigger and bigger, and it became deeply divided until half the church left and started its own church in town. Now, he talks about these churches, and they're both still around, but the external witness was gone. All of the activities the church was doing is gone. They were like internally focused social clubs doing their own thing that they liked. And the shocking thing was what was the issue that drove the church to split as it grew? Well, they served coffee after church to encourage fellowship. And there was one group who wanted the coffee pot by the exit door and one who wanted it in the fellowship hall. 
And over time, because of the grumbling and the building of factions, that led to a church split. One author noted a church racked by internal conflict finds its message lost, its energy dissipated, and a church focused on itself will find it difficult to reach out to the lost world. So how does this fracturing body that we're taking a look into, how is it going to reach the world and fulfill Christ's mission to expand beyond Jerusalem and get to the ends of the earth with the gospel? So this is the real focus of the passage. It's on the solution. So it doesn't go into great detail from here on other matters that we might like to know. It's the solution through organization. And verse 2 says the 12, they called the number of disciples together. They said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, he's referring to all the members of the church, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We have to remember when we're reading Acts, it's giving us the history of the church. Right? All of the structures will get unfolded later, but we're seeing this move from 120 to a growing and growing church. So we're looking back in history to see God's work as he grows and develops the church all over time. And here we see a tipping point. The church is huge, as we've noted, and the administration of its resources and the social work and ministry to serve those in the church is ever-growing. It's all-consuming. Now, there are several points that we can take from this passage, and I'll just touch on a few. The first one is that the apostles didn't jump in and try to do all things. They didn't try to do all things to please all people. Their choice wasn't to change course, to pull back and say, these complaints are about us, we need to now focus all of our energy here. Instead, they turned around and they looked back out to the people of God, the church, because they knew that God provides everything his church needs to thrive. Romans 12 would capture this well, and the apostles knew it. For as one in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You see, throughout the Bible, we see a common truth. God never intended that one man or a small group of men would exercise all authority over every aspect and do all things in a congregation of believers. The congregation itself never loses responsibility, always plays a role. And then within that congregation, men and women are each uniquely gifted to serve in various roles. All who belong to Jesus are called to serve in obedience to Christ. And when this happens, God works wonders through his church. The apostles could have very easily fallen into the trap of jumping back and trying to do everything, but they knew what their calling was. Their calling was to preach, and here's the thing we cannot miss, and it's a good reminder for us. We are told right from the beginning they knew the scriptures. They studied the scriptures, so they didn't need to learn the lesson the hard way. They could go back and look at the will of God. And the lesson that they needed was easily learned in the history of Moses. Now, it doesn't tell us they turned here, but they knew it. And we see it one great example in Exodus 18. Uh, Moses was doing everything. He was doing everything. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And the people stand around you from morning till evening. And then Moses goes on in the text to explain why he's got to do it all. He's got to do it all. He's the leader. And then in verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. It's not good. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I'll give you advice. God be with you. 
And this next piece of advice is essentially the apostle's role. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. This is the apostle's preaching and teaching ministry. Verse 21, he tells him, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, men who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. The parallels are striking, and we can find any number of examples. But God provides the people and the talents in his church that the church needs. And scripture reminds us that we all play a role. Too often today, people kind of divide ministry by vocational ministry, and they say, well, the pastor's in ministry, and we go to church. Well, that's not really it. Everybody's in ministry. They just have particularly particular ministries, and pastors are just given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.12. So it is ultimately the entire body of Christ that is called together to serve one another, to serve the members that will reach the lost, and so the apostles don't do everything to try to solve this problem, even when that grumbling and complaining is really directed at them. They knew they could refocus their efforts, or they could look for help. And here we see that they call on the congregation to solve the problem. The second thing to notice is a recognition of calling, a recognition of calling here in this text. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 and 17 reminds us, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. The apostles know what their calling is. They are called to preaching, to prayer, what we call the ministry of the word. Other people in the church are uniquely gifted in administration or other forms of service, and both are just as important. There's not one that's more important than the other. They're just different. First Peter 4 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. It's not all the same. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that everything... In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. See, God ensures that every believer, every person in his church has a gift that he or she is called to use for the glory of Jesus Christ. Every person is called to ministry, and every ministry is important to the orderly functioning of the church. Yep, the preacher gets to stand on stage, but if the janitor did not come and do his work, none of you would walk into this building to hear anything that was said. They are equally important. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 12, and you know that. We're not going to turn to it. It uses the body as an analogy, and it says not everybody can be an eye or an ear or a hand, right? It takes everybody connected to the body, each with its own role, its own gift, and all are needed to function. Now, one of the things that we can stumble into with this text is we read, uh, we're going to pray and preach, and uh, we're not going to serve tables, And it sounds demeaning to us because of our cultural lens that we impose on that. We are a celebrity culture. We're a celebrity culture, right? We look at people who are up front or writing things or blogging. We're a celebrity culture. But Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. There's no glory that's different in the different roles to which we're called. Serving Christ in whatever way we are called is done for his glory. And our joy comes because we bring him glory by serving in the ways that he has called us to serve. Now, serving tables really is not a demeaning thing here anyway. We just read it that way oftentimes because what it means is actually pretty broad. It means handling the financial matters of the church, dealing with the donations and the money that comes in, using the purchasing power of the church to buy goods, make decisions to get those goods for those who suffer, ministering to the people in the church who have needs, figuring those out and distributing the goods so that people will not starve to death, so they won't go hungry. So there's really no differentiation implied here at all in the value of service, but there is a different calling. And Satan's work is to create dissension between those, to distract 
Those, like the apostles, who are charged with teaching, preaching, prayer, ministry of the word, so that they leave the congregation untaught and unprotected and ill-equipped to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they become vulnerable to deception, to false teaching, and to a failed ministry of Christ to the lost world. A third thing to note here is how. How was the church to choose men to fulfill this role? Well, it's not based on popularity. It's not based on last name. The selection is based on character. It's based on character and faith that is actually lived out. These are to be men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Good repute is a good reputation. And what this refers to is that they must set an example of godliness for people to follow. You look at their lives and you ask, is Christ their all in all? Are they present? You're choosing them from among you. Are they present in worship with you week after week? Are they leading by example? Are they devoted to the word? Do their lives reflect a strong draw towards obedience to Christ and humility and service? Are they trustworthy in word and deed? All of these things are necessary because this is a huge church and these are men that are being chosen who will be entrusted with the financial resources of the church. And they'd be responsible for using it to serve the needs of the members. Now, some people jump from this and say, well, these are the first deacons in the church. There's similarity with the office of deacon here, but it's not actually correct to say that these seven men are the first seven who are called as official deacons in the church. That office, just like the office of pastor, elder, and the role of the congregation, all of that will get developed later as the church spreads, and we'll run into that. There's just significant overlap here in what these seven men do and what deacons are called to do. They're certainly part of it. And there's overlap in the qualifications. So it's worth just looking quickly at 1 Timothy 3 to see how these broad criteria that are given here are later fleshed out because they start pretty much in the same way. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, right? Men of good reputation. Not double-tongued, they must be trustworthy. Not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So you really see the same thing going on as the church develops more official offices. They're all character requirements. And they all build upon one characteristic. In 1 Timothy, we read dignified, but it's the same really here as men of good reputation. Now they must also, it says, be filled with the Spirit. All Christians are filled with the Spirit, so this is just an elaboration on good reputation. They must be men who you look to and see that they submit themselves to the Spirit's control in every aspect of life. And part of the, how you see this is how quickly do they turn to Scripture when they're faced with difficult decisions and prayer. And they must have wisdom. They must have wisdom. Now, that does not mean that they need to be the smartest seven men in the congregation. We kind of use wisdom in a funny way. It is to be like the sons of Issachar. This is actually one of my favorite lines in Scripture, 1 Chronicles 12. These are men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. That is describing the wisdom here. It is knowing the Bible and then having the practical ability to apply biblical truth to every situation that comes up. It is knowing what God says and then being able to take what God says and apply it to life for yourself and as you serve others. Well, the apostles made the suggestion in verse 5, said it pleased the whole gathering. They thought this was a good idea. And it tells us the men they chose, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, which I find is fascinating because it says he's a proselyte. If you don't know what that means, it means he wasn't born a Jew, right? He converted to Judaism and then converted to Christianity. But Nicholas, a proselyte, they set him before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. Now, Stephen, we know, will be featured next in Acts. He'll preach the longest sermon and he'll become a martyr. Philip but we'll take the gospel to the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch. And he would be known later in Acts as Philip the Evangelist. So he must have been quite good at what he did. Prochorus, 
the last man we know much about, later served as a secretary to the Apostle John. Then he became an elder in a church, and he too was later martyred in Antioch. It's a rough calling. The rest we don't know much about. They were obviously men who were called, who have good repute, who did wonderful things in the church, but we don't serve for our own glory. And so they were good enough to have their names recorded in Scripture forever. But their glory awaits with Christ. We don't know anything else about them. The apostles laid their hands on them. There's nothing magical or unique in this particular instance. It was a formal way of identifying that these seven men are indeed the seven men that you as a church chose and are recognized by the apostles as men that you have given authority within their sphere of ministry. And so they can be trusted to take action and they can be trusted to make decisions. Now, Luke doesn't go on to give us the details. It'd be really fascinating to see how do seven men solve this problem within the church, end the bickering, solve the unfairness in a church of 20,000 that didn't all meet in one place. They met throughout the city and they met in their homes. We'd always like to know more details. Or at least I would. I'd love to hear what they did. I mean, it would be helpful. But the main point is that the church came together to solve the internal issue that kept them from losing sight of the main objective. And they did it well. Their main objective was to grow as disciples through the teaching of the word of God, the apostles' teaching, and to reach the lost by the proclamation of the word. And they did this In this case, by relying on structure to solve the issue. There's that principle in 1 Corinthians 14 that God's not a God of confusion, but of peace. And all things should be done decently and in order. Something that should always drive us within the church. Because it represents who we are to the world as children of God, followers of Christ. And here by the delegation of authority, and by the church's willingness to then submit to that authority of the seven... And by the structures that are emerging in the church, order is going to be preserved. And the witness of the church and the preaching of the word would continue to thrive. And that is our last heading. God continues to work through the church, right? The powerful results of a faithful church. Verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we actually end where we began, with the power of the word of God proclaimed to all people. And the number of disciples was growing and growing. It is highlighting for us that when Christ is boldly preached from the Bible, in fullness and in truth, when all people are taught that they are in dire straits, that they have sinned against a holy, righteous, just God who will not leave sin unpunished, but... There's a but, which is good, but God is merciful. And God acted to save us from his wrath by sending his son. That Jesus, truly God and truly man, lived without sin so he could make the once for all perfect substitutionary sacrifice for us, paying our debt on the cross. When all people are pointed to this, The point that he lives, he rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven, he'll come again. He is our blessed hope and we do not depend on our good deeds because we rest in his righteousness. Then even the most unlikely people can, might be, will be touched by the Holy Spirit and repent and believe and that's what we see here. Many of the priests believed. Many of the priests believed believed. These were those who served daily in the temple, the Levites. We're not talking about the high priest or the Sanhedrin that we've run into, but these are the thousands of priests who would come in and serve in the temple. And they came to see uh, through that church, through how they lived and served one another, through how they solved their problems, through the continuous proclamation of the word of Christ, they came to see the beauty of Jesus. And they turned to him. See, the word of God is the means used by God, the Holy Spirit, to enliven our souls, to draw us to faithful obedience to Jesus. Hebrews 4 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart.
to the Bible, when it is read, when it is studied, when it is preached, when it is taught, will reach into lives and it will transform situations according to God's will. But we're all called to be disciples. We have to be faithful. We actually have to turn to it, to let it shape us. We can't close off our hearts and follow our passions and do these things. We see what God says. In the text, the church quickly, biblically addressed its internal challenges so they could continue to grow in the knowledge of Christ, and they never lost sight of the calling of every member in that church. And of course, the primacy of the Word of God. Because the passage ultimately teaches us that a church that is well-taught, that is well-grounded in Scripture, a church that is united together in Christ with Him as their focus, a church where members use their gifts and are actively serving Jesus Christ by serving and loving one another, that church will be a powerful witness of the grace and the glory of Jesus to the surrounding community and to the world. And that's what we're called to. And we can. And we should. And we must be that church. We need to live our mission to be disciples of Jesus Christ because that is how disciples are made. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the powerful message of your word. Knowing that we can never plumb the depths of your wisdom, your glory, your truth. But each time we can just scratch the surface. Lord, we pray that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts and in our lives, ever turning us back to the beauty of your son, reminding us what he has done to save each and every one of us, reminding us that while we deserved wrath, you provided grace, gave us freely what we do not deserve. And that for this, Lord, we pray that you will build in us hearts that are driven to worship, driven to live for Jesus, and that we might have an urgency and a passion to reach those who do not know him. Lord, give us hearts that love people, that love each other, and continue to use us to draw people to your Son. It is in Jesus' name we pray that his will would be done in his people, in his church, and in this community where you've placed us. Amen.